This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 64, recorded on March 24th, 2017. I'm your host, Tim Kripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital, affiliated with The Ohio State University. I'm here with a slew of co-hosts and a special guest, a former TWIPO host. So we're reuniting here a little bit. Our current host here, welcome Carrie Streeby. Hello. Welcome Neil A. Shaw. Happy to be here. Welcome Ryan Roberts. Even happier to be here. (laughs) And a former co-host from the old days of Cincinnati Children's Hospital when we first started this podcast, who's now the chief of pediatric hematology oncology at the University of Kentucky in Lexington. Welcome Dr. Lars Wagner. Hi. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Lars, for a little reminiscing and whatnot. whatnot. (laughs) So we have a whole lot of folks here, so we'll probably just go around the room asking you questions so that I don't hog the time. But tell us, uh, you know, you've been around a while. Um, We usually start with our history and all that, but we like to hear anecdotal stories from days gone by. So we know you went to SMU in Dallas for undergrad and University of Kentucky for med school and then bounced around the country for more training and including St. Jude and Utah. and Can you tell us any stories from those days that might inspire junior people coming up through the ranks or what inspired you? To, what, what brought you into pediatrics or pediatric oncology? Was there any particular motivation or how'd you get hooked? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I spent four years as a general pediatrician and that's a area that I liked but really had a ongoing desire to uh, do something um, in the field of pediatric oncology and I kept talking about it and talking about it and finally my wife said just go ahead and do it already um, <laughs> and so uh, went and uh, back and did fellowship um, and we were talking with the fellows earlier today about this so even challenging times like leaving a private practice and becoming a first-year fellow certainly has paid off for me in terms of what an enjoyable field and wonderful area to practice medicine uh, in. So uh, things have worked out very nicely. That's right. You did a number of years, three or four years, I think, after General Peds practicing in private practice before you went back. Correct. What brought you back? Were you always planning to do that? Um, and initially, I got kind of hooked on pediatric oncology um, in fourth year of medical school. My wife and I sat down and watched a St. Jude infomercial <laughs> by the end of the one-hour infomercial. Uh, I My interest was captivated, and so... Um, That's the first time I've heard that, but great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how, how about that? Congratulations to St. Jude. That's great. They, they're responsible that, for you being an oncologist. That's right. That's right. Cool. You know, you went to a bunch of different institutions. You've taken care of a lot of patients. Were there anybody early on that sort of or, or validated your choice or, you know, when was that moment? Was there a moment for you that you just said, I'm doing what I love doing? Yeah. You know, I think um, there's been multiple moments um, throughout my career that it's been a nice validation of, hey, maybe this is the right place uh, for me. Uh, an early clinical trial uh, that I'd started my first year as a faculty member, uh, seeing patients actually respond and, and benefit from the, the hard work that went into that 
was was great. Um, and then going uh, through the years, uh, recognizing that the outcome that we have for patients um, is is very important. But some of my most satisfying time as a pediatric oncologist for uh, caring for patients that are dying of their disease and and recognizing that we provide care for the entire family and and helping patients and and uh, family members uh, deal with um, all the aspects of pediatric oncology so it's it's a wonderful field it's a wonderful field I agree it's also um, time consuming and all encompassing right you really never <laughs> very much go away from it so Who's got a good question for Dr. So, so related to that, um, you know, you've you've been in the field for uh, a significant period of time, and the science of clinical research has has changed and adapted. What's available out there has changed. The the whole dynamics of the field. So, what's better? What's what's worse? And and what do you want to be better? I, I think it's we easy. don't ask hard questions here. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> well, that's an easy one. <laughs> I, I think the the field of clinical pediatric oncology, it's just such an exciting time because there's so many drugs, there's so many targets, there's such great potential. It's a really exciting time to um, uh, be a, a part of all of this. And, you know, with the uh, explosion in knowledge of genomic profiling of tumors and the availability of targeted agents and um, the um, new developments in immunotherapies and uh, all these many areas, it, it makes it very challenging to keep up with things. But the opportunities that are available for our patients um, just keeps getting uh, greater and greater. So it is fun to see over the years how much uh, we progressed. And it's challenging sometimes when we realize uh, we haven't progressed as much as we we uh, would like to so um, it's it's a it's a two-edged sword but both of those things keep me coming back for more I guess you talked about how we have lots of different opportunities and potential drugs and therapies that might be useful and might not <laughs> how in your mind do you prioritize and decide i mean you've made a reputation as someone who's thoughtful about clinical trials and has come up with some good ideas of your own so how in your mind do you think about the plethora of options that are out there and figure out which ones are likely to help right and it's a it's a good question and and for every good idea i come up with there's lots of uh, good ideas that don't make it and bad ideas that never <laughs> should make it and so it's difficult i think um in my mind the science drives uh, the basic um, decision to learn more about something and pursue it does that sound like a good scientific idea is there a good solid rationale to do this i think whereas in uh, some adult trials they basically kind of pick two medicines off the shelf and see what they do together in a clinical trial, we really try to be very thoughtful um, with the limited number of patients that we have to carefully construct these uh, trials. So there's very uh, many factors that go into things um, in terms of um, mechanistic reasons and logistical reasons. Do we think these drugs will work well together? Practical reasons, is this something that is doable or feasible for patients? And um, so there's a, a really wide variety. Um, it requires constant vigilance of the literature, especially as we're coming up with ideas so you can kind of stay um, abreast of what developments are happening. You can talk with people and kind of figure out where things are, are going. Um, 
but it, it's um, it's an ever-changing field, and there's good ideas out there, um, but we have to uh, cast the net pretty broadly. I think um, a lot of uh, things that I've picked up have been in the adult literature um, and, and outside of the field of pediatric oncology, um, some potentially useful things to consider or not to consider. And so um, really, it, uh, you just have to aggressively look for, for different options. How important is it then to have preclinical data in pediatric models or is that not important and, you know, is it, what are some of the major things that you're looking for in terms of prioritizing? Yeah, that's that's a hard one too. I mean, I think historically, because the number of patients are limited, um, we can only do so many trials that we um, then um, the importance of preclinical data became at least something, some hoop that needed to be jumped through before we could perform and, and invest resources into treating patients. Um, whether that's the right approach or the wrong approach uh, remains to be seen. I think it really depends on how predictive are the preclinical models actually are. I think one thing that is not emphasized enough is um, when you do have preclinical activity of a combination, a real careful examination of um, uh, drug exposures and practical, like how translatable is that actually to patients and how uh, does the therapy represent exactly um, the, the kind of levels that would be achieved in a patient and does the model really represent um, what uh, a disease that's similar to what the patients have. And so uh, Pete Houghton, for example, was uh, made a big priority of uh, making sure that we're, we're looking at reasonably achievable drug levels in these preclinical experiments. Otherwise, they're not very translatable. We have to remember preclinical experiments are basically N of one trials um, and represent a single patient experience uh, in, in terms of uh, the tumor coming from a patient uh, most of the time. And, and so um, it's a limited number of uh, models that we have available and limited um, ways of looking at them. So while we use that to sort out and identify good ideas, I don't know that it's the final arbiter of good ideas. Having had a successful clinical research career, looking back at it or sitting down and talking with junior faculty, what advice would you give for tools in the toolbox, <laughs> as one of my colleagues always likes to yeah. advise us, what types of tools would you recommend for people to start looking into adding in if they're looking into clinical research versus the basic science world. Right, sure. So for clinical research, really making a, a big effort to um, read as much as you can, understand as much as you can about clinical trial design and try to learn from the lessons of uh, both successful but particularly unsuccessful trials. Um, and why did that not work? Um, uh, trying to maximize the, the um, correlative studies that are involved, even if the therapy is not a success, maybe we can still learn valuable information um, from these patients in terms of identifying markers of resistance or figuring out why a treatment failed, maybe as important as figuring out why that it worked. Um, so uh, I think, again, um, thinking of Pete Houghton, uh, the three most important words of advice that he gave me during fellowship was focus and finish. Um, and I say this to my kids all the time, and it drives them crazy, but it is very, <laughs> very helpful information uh, or advice because um, I think as junior faculty people, it's, it's easy to get uh, distracted with a lot of ideas and a lot of uh, different projects all going on at the same time. And it's just really critical to close the loop. Projects have value once uh, the loop is finally closed and you've learned as much or done as much with a project as you as you really can and so um, that was helpful advice to me I try to um, keep that in mind I can hear him saying that all the time uh, <laughs> uh, focus and finish and uh, get get projects done um, in a timely fashion so they can really be of, of benefit to people so that brings up the question of uh, focus of time and effort of 
how do you prioritize what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis? You've got a significant administrative responsibility now as division chief. You've got a lot of patients I think you still see. You have a busy clinical practice. You are involved in national committees and so forth and trying to launch clinical trials and think of the next trial and down the pipeline. So um, how do you handle all that? <laughs> um, I have a wonderful wife uh, who's <laughs> very uh, understanding and, and amazingly supportive of me. I think there there are some ways to become more efficient in time management um, that I'm finally catching on to <laughs> after years of failure in this area. Please um, tell us all. <laughs> <laughs> I think a balance with everything is important in that people can actually be more efficient if they uh, have some semblance of a balance in other aspects of their life. And I think um, carving out time to do things uh, that are important for maintaining your energy level and focus are as as important as just plowing ahead uh, with the next project. Um, so those are, are things that have been helpful for me. It is a, a challenge um, in terms of juggling administrative and patient care and research uh, responsibilities, but it's actually, uh, that's kind of neat too. Um, and it, it, to me, it's helped uh, avoid burnout. Uh, when I get uh, really beat up in the clinic, I can go retreat back to the research world and work <laughs> on a project for a while. And then when I'm uh, tired of that, I um, will deal with some of the administrative responsibilities. And so kind of rotating those things that are more equally dispersed has been of value to me. It may not be a great fit for everybody, but that's been helpful for me. One of the things I found interesting about your sort of career, big picture-wise, you've taken something that you started as the very first year of your fellowship and really carried out a theme in some ways. <laughs> uh, that is a, a very gentle way of saying I'm a one-trick pony. <laughs> <laughs> and I appreciate that. <laughs> not, nothing not wrong with tennis. consistency. <laughs> it's a good trick. I know. Yeah. It's if served you, you well. Trick, if you have a good trick, go with it. But So you've been building on a platform and trying different things. And it, I would have thought, oh, you know, he did an arena TCAN study, move on to other things, but you've continued to build on. you become an expert in it. Um, tell us about that. Is that something that is a good thing to do? You become the world's expert. But I guess I, what I was trying to say is it's amazing to me, looking back, how much more could be built on that that I wouldn't have thought of at the beginning or predicted. Right, right. And I, I think that's probably true for a variety of different areas if one is really willing to stick with something and, and kind of um, uh, further develop this or uh, further elaborate. I think a lot of it, though, is to do with the very first clinical trial that we did. We had more responses than I expected. I, I had no idea kind of what to expect, but um, seeing clinical responses in the first few patients really got me excited about this combination. You know, I didn't, uh, I was a neuroblastoma guy when I started, and then seeing responses in sarcoma, it's like, oh, well, that's pretty I cool. Let me, sarcoma guy. Let, me, let me learn about <laughs> sarcoma. Um, and so in a way, um, I let um, uh, some of this kind of guide my career direction, and that pathway has worked out great uh, for me. I don't know if it's the best pathway for everything. I think um, uh, I was very fortunate to get on with something that may have a little bit of a of staying power and, and um, a, a topic that hopefully is still somewhat relevant. You know, with the rune and TCAM-based therapies now getting uh, in frontline management of rhabdomyosarcoma, sarcoma, I think we're going to see more and more um, uh, arena TCAN stuff kind of come through the pipeline. And so it's just um, been something that uh, I thought could be kind of further developed. Well, one of the things you talked about today that has got to be layered on top of all this is biomarker studies or yes, patient absolutely. selection. So 
and measurement of, of responses. Talk to us about that a bit. Yeah, I think um, we are really hurting for predictive biomarkers um, with the conventional therapies as well as uh, with targeted therapies. And it's interesting um, how uh, bio- things that we think are going to be biomarkers, um, like in the uh, loratumab uh, uh, sarcoma experience, you know, this is a drug, it's a targeted monoclonal antibody to uh, PDGFR alpha, um, yet expression of that target really <laughs> um, was not convincingly predictive of response or, or lack of response. Um, so it, it just shows that um, we really need to put more emphasis into uh, predictive biomarkers and, and allow for prioritization of uh, tr- individual patients to be treated. With the arena TKIN, um, the expression of uh, SLFN11, SLFN11, um, is uh, something that I've kind of got my eye on and I'm, I'm certainly trying to uh, develop some ways to investigate that further. One of the tricky things, though, is looking at a predictive biomarker in the context of multi-agent chemotherapy regimen. So it's easy with a single agent. Um, it either works or it doesn't. And, and, uh, but what does that mean You know, when we see a patient respond, uh, but they're getting three or four drugs, uh, what are they responding to? And it's, it's really hard to say. And I think um, because uh, renin-TCAN is not going to be studied much by itself anymore, it becomes difficult to know what's the significance of, of that. Another softball for you. <laughs> There's this ongoing theme that I think a, a lot of people, particularly those involved in the kind of the uh, application of precision medicine, that the good players tend to be more uniform, and your bad players, your 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 non-responders, tend to be more diverse. And leaving aside the evolution of disease during therapy, but even kind of at the onset, we're developing these predictive biomarkers, and you kind of talked about some of that data, and it's really really cool data. But what do we do with it? You know, do we take the herd approach? Not, and not, I don't mean that in a in a uh, negative way, but do we take it in that approach of take all the players, put them all in the same phase one? Do we take that personalized medicine approach? Do we scramble and just kind of randomly assign based on this is the family of of drugs that may work well? What what do you think? And then and we have to layer on that the cost benefit. Genomics is easy to say, hard to do, even harder to find people that do it well. Mm-hmm. So where do we layer all that? Where, what do you think would be the, the most logical first approach at that? Great questions, and I'm not sure I have a convincing um, answer for, for any of this. I think part of it is we still uh, know relatively little about the biology in terms of the uh, ability of biologic features of tumors to predict responses, right? And you're right that that the, the the bad actors, the ones that we're really trying to identify, they're an even more heterogeneous group, and the findings can be more varied and scattered, and so it becomes even a, a bigger challenge. I think you know, starting as we do uh, with therapeutic approaches in patients with multiple relapsed disease, we these patients are defined as bad actors. That's who we need to help the most, uh, in a sense. And and so trying to to learn as much as we we can from each of those patients is probably the the, the best idea. And uh, again, the correlative studies for uh, patients with recurrent disease, I think, are really critically important prioritization or should we be thinking outside of the box and using drugs for diseases that we never would have uh, thought? Maybe so. As pediatric oncologists, though, it, it inherently makes uh, at least some of the older ones of us uh, more uncomfortable if there's not some data, um, and we're reluctant 
actually to to kind of jump ship uh, with the way that we've always done it uh, for a variety of reasons and maybe that's to our own detriment um, then perhaps we need to be more aggressive in thinking uh, outside the the box and, and looking at diseases that are active for tumors that we never would have thought for pediatric cancers did you so, see that was a softball question? <laughs> it was. I'd, I'd it to, was sarcastic. <laughs> I'd, I'd hate to hear the fastball. <laughs> it's often said that if we don't learn from history, history we'll be forced to repeat it. Yes. Um, in thinking about the future, are there lessons that you learned? Hard, hard won lessons that you think have value for all of us thinking about how to do these things well and, and how to succeed as, as individuals and as a community of physicians? Another great question. Um, you know, I, He's I, getting sorry that he agreed, <laughs> 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 he agreed to participate. Right. Oh, look at the time. <laughs> you can change the names to protect the innocent. <laughs> I might have to. Now, these are great questions. I, I think looking back at my own career, there are absolutely opportunities that I wish, um, you know, kind of ideas that cross my mind and think, oh, maybe we should do that, and then not pursue that. It, not that you can pursue every good idea, but there's things that ultimately um, uh, were done that I wish that I would have been able to participate in earlier on, uh, kind of thinking along the same lines of things. So my, I guess my advice, and in talking with the fellows at, at uh, the noon meeting today, don't uh, artificially limit yourself in any one particular area. Learn from every experience. Learn from the adults, especially what's going on. You know, when I go to meetings like ASCO, I spend more of my time with the adult stuff than in the pediatric stuff just to see what's going on. Try to read as much as you can and, and uh, expose yourself to as, as wide a variety of different ways of thinking. I think that's where new ideas come from. And most of my errors that I've made, unfortunately, were errors of omission and commission, um, just not pursuing things in, in a more intentional fashion, I guess. There's an emerging area you talked about today, the radiomics. That yeah. sounds pretty cool. I've seen it in a couple grant applications, but didn't really understand it. Got a little bit better understanding today, despite your <laughs> recognition that you're can also you a newbie at it. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so can you tell us about that? So to me, radiomics are somewhat like um, microwaves. Um, I love to They're eat. watching you? I eat to leave. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love to eat microwave popcorn when I'm at home watching a movie on TV. I'm not sure I could understand exactly how a microwave cooks the popcorn, but that's okay. Um, I think the, the general concepts behind radiomics are really what's critical to understand is that uh, images contain mineable, quantifiable data from which we can get more out of than just a simple radiology report. And uh, through some really cool um, uh, computational software, um, it's kind of the intersection of the technology uh, guys and the biostatistician guys. Um, two areas that I unfortunately do not excel in. But emerging of those fields, the bottom line is that it's objective, it's measurable, it's quantifiable information that we are already getting anyway. We're just not using that information. And so I'm really excited about the potential um, uh, applications for this. Already um, in a limited number of uh, adult diseases, we're starting to learn, hey, maybe we can predict which patients are going to do 
poorly um, from their diagnostic scan of their extremity sarcoma, or, or maybe we'd be able to predict which patients with, with liver cancer will respond to doxorubicin, or which patients with brain tumors will respond to therapy. So there is, I think, a lot of untapped available information that even though I don't understand the the uh, technology and the, the mechanisms by how that uh, information is calculated, I do understand um, the, the potential. Um, and I, I think it's it's really extraordinary and it's a great opportunity. Just to clarify for our listeners, for example, you showed a picture of a, of a lung nodule on a CT scan in two different patients that looked quite similar. No one of their right mind could really distinguish them right. or predict what they would do. And yet when they're circled and you extract the numbers behind those images that are creating them, there's a whole bunch of different parameters there that were wildly different between the two. Right. So even though they right. looked similar, they measure in some way that neither of us understand. Right. Quite different. <laughs> and uh, so that's the kind of data you're talking about that's sort of embedded in these pictures that Correct. has gone basically unnoticed by everyone. Correct. Right, right. <laughs> and is this something you've gotten out of the adult side? Like you said, you're kind of mining the adults. <laughs> a- absolutely. It's a it's an extension of that. I'm trying to squeeze every knowable drop of useful information I can f- I get my hands on. Uh, and uh, now the adults have led the charge on this. Um, I think the radiomics correlative studies that we're uh, doing in a, a trial with the Pediatric National Cancer Foundation is... The, uh, the first one that's in, uh, involving pediatric patients. Uh, but I'm, I'm really excited about this and uh, probably more excited about the correlative studies than the, the, the therapeutic trial. But uh, if we learn something from this and learn, um, uh, you know, contribute to the underlying knowledge base, hopefully we'll be able to apply this to our patients one day. Yeah, it'd be great to be able to get a lot more useful information about right. what we're already doing. And right. avoiding things like biopsies that, that can put the patients at more risk. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. Right. Treatment. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> That's unnecessary. Yeah. Right. Thank you all for being here. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks, Neelay. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you, Lars. Thank you, Lars. Thank you, Lars. Thank you, Tim, for inviting me. We are thankful to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. The team includes Donna Ludwinskare, executive producer, and Cindy Camel, Director of Communications. And thanks to John London and Scott Kennedy, who are the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. And remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. 